Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The British Parliament in chaos, and the question is, Prime Minister May, is she going to survive? Alan Sked is a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics. He's also the founder of the political party UKIP. It's been said, no Alan Sked means no UKIP. No UKIP means no referendum. No referendum means no Brexit. I spoke with Alan Sked about that and a lot more. Listen. A 44-year-old single mother whose 9-year-old son is severely disabled finds herself in conflict with her insurance company, which has decided not to follow through on the policy she has with them. I spoke with her lawyer, James Fireman. Cherry Arsenault's son Bradley and his two friends Thaddeus Lake and Cole Novak were killed by drunk driver Jonathan Pratt in 2011 when he drove his car into their vehicle at over 200 kilometers an hour. He had a parole hearing this week, and Sherry attended. Listen to what she had to say about how that parole hearing went. Anne-Marie Gatto is a registered social worker, a psychotherapist, and a chronic pain patient. She's been trying to get an answer from the Federal Ministry of Health about statements made about opioids. You have to listen to this phone call she had with the member of the ministry staff. You'll find it hard to believe, but it happened. Listen. British Prime Minister, I don't know whether she's hanging on to her position as Prime Minister or whether she has a solid grasp on number 10 Downing Street. But uh, we're about to find out as we talk about what's going on in the UK and really the EU as well. And and uh, with, this, with the Brexit issue, I was reading something disturbing just last night about the possibility of sectarian strife redeveloping in Northern Ireland because of this, because Northern Ireland doesn't want to have its border with Ireland uh, compromised or, or, or become a, a, a sort of a regular border again. They like the fact that it's open. Alan Sked is a professor of emeritus of international history at the London School of Economics. He's the founder of uh, UKIP, although it wasn't called UKIP at that time, but he is the founder of the party the UK Independence Party, and it's been said, no Alan Sked means no UKIP, no UKIP means no referendum, and no referendum means no Brexit. The professor is not a great fan of uh, Britain staying in the European Union, and he joins us from the UK now. Professor Sked, thank you so much for taking the time. No, thank you for inviting me. So for us in Canada, who are following Brexit but are somewhat confused by the messaging. It all depends on whose soundtrack or whose voice clip we happen to hear at any given time during the day. Where do things stand today? What's what's the current status of the Brexit issue? Well, <laughs> the current status is rather unclear because the position of the Prime Minister is unclear. Uh, what we do know is that she's broken all the promises she made uh, that she was going to carry out during the negotiations of the European Union. And she's delivered a deal which I think is the greatest humiliation for for Britain probably since the Munich uh, uh, settlement in 1938. And, that's, I mean, that's quite a statement. Mm. Is, she, is she then in serious trouble? Is there enough opposition to the Prime Minister that she could find herself evicted from number 10 in the very near future. Yes, I, I, 
Yeah, I, I, I hope. I think she'll be uh, uh, challenged to a leadership contest next week, uh, and I hope she'll lose it. Um, she's done nothing to deserve support, um, and the, the, the Tory party is badly, badly split. And I think when members of a party get time to read this deal, which is about 600 pages long, uh, they'll realize what an awful uh, settlement she's reached. And uh, it will encourage them to get rid of her. So why is there an issue at all? The, the Brexit referendum was held. There was a clear victory for the get-out-of-the-European-Union side. Mm-hmm. And, and yet here we are. Uh, with months to go before this is supposed to actually take place. And there's this toing and froing. Uh, it, it cost David Cameron his job, and quite rightly so, because he backed the wrong horse. But here, there's still this confusion going on. Why, isn't, why wasn't the referendum result sufficient? Why isn't that decision carrying the day? Well, you must remember, David Cameron uh, ordered the referendum. The referendum was held. One side was led by the government, which had twice as much money to spend as the Brexiteers. The Brexiteers were an unofficial group of members of parliament from the the major parties uh, who put forward the case, and the public unexpectedly voted for it. Now, Cameron then resigned. But you must remember, although he resigned, his pro-Remain government was still there. And in his place came Theresa May, who had campaigned to stay inside the European Union, and she ended up being Prime Minister of a cabinet, which was mainly uh, David Cameron's cabinet. And so we had a cabinet that was two-thirds, at least, Remainers. She brought in a number of prominent Brexiteers in order to be able to say that she was honestly going to deliver the result of the referendum. But they were always in a minority of, uh, at the very most, a third, probably a quarter. And she kept them out of the negotiating loop. Boris Johnson was made foreign secretary, but he never had any input into the negotiations. David Davis was was made Brexit secretary, but um, he was kept out too. And she herself did most of the negotiating, along with a couple of civil servants. Uh, who were adamantly pro-Romania as well. So the end result of the negotiations, not surprisingly, is a document which more or less keeps us inside the European Union, uh, but without any representation on its political bodies. So we're in a worse situation now than we were when we were members. We have to accept all the regulations and laws and legislation of the European Union, but we have no input and no say into how these laws are decided. So we just take the results of their decision-making and we have to implement them during a transition period of two years. And for this incredible situation, we've agreed to pay the European Union £40 billion. Pounds. Uh, it, it beggars belief. Well, it does. Uh, and, and so you have a prime minister who was in favour of Britain staying in the European Union, yes. leading the exit or the Brexit from the European Union and coming to an agreement with the European Union, with Brexiteers, if you will, or those favoring Brexit, not participating in the in the negotiations. And now there's a 600-page document, which she's trying to persuade uh, the British Parliament 
to support. It, it's, it's enough to give you a headache. Is, is there, though, a likelihood that the Labor Party, that you might have enough support from the Labor Party to carry this through and, and, and eventually prove her victorious? Well, uh, I think there are pro-European Remainers inside the Labour Party who might uh, try and come to a rescue, but I don't think there are sufficient numbers of them. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, the leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition, uh, has a long record of opposing the EU and was always uh, a, a sort of Brexiteer, although during the referendum itself he more or less kept quiet. Um, the Labour Party uh, is committed to voting against the agreement. That's the party line because they, 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 they don't think it goes far enough in securing a permanent customs arrangement between the UK and the EU. Um, so the, the, if you take the official Labour line, the party will vote against the agreement in, par, in Parliament. But there is a, a possibility that fanatical pro-European uh, Labour MPs may try and rescue but I, I don't think it would be any more than about uh, 12 to 20, and that certainly wouldn't be enough to, to, to rescue the agreement. When is this all going to come to a head? Oh, it's going to come to a head uh, very soon. Um, her premiership might be ended next week uh, with any luck. Uh, I, I think uh, she'll be challenged. If, if it's not she's not challenged next week, then uh, she's got five allegedly Brexiteer members still in the cabinet who, according to newspaper reports, are trying at the 11th hour uh, to persuade her to change the agreement. Uh, and if they don't get their way, um, they're threatening to resign, and that will make the cabinet dissolve, I think. Um, but the, I, I don't think they've got much hope because A, she'll be reluctant to make any changes and B, the European Commission is saying it's not interested in negotiating any changes that the deal is a, a final one. So um, uh, if she's not facing a leadership challenge this week, it could be a week later. Uh, she's supposed to be going to Brussels and if she's not making changes and you know, the, the, the deal remains as it is, then these other five, perhaps more members of the cabinet, will probably resign, which leaves her extraordinarily weak. In any case, the whole deal, whatever the state of our government or cabinet, the whole deal is supposed to go in front of the House of Commons on the 12th of December, uh, when the whole House has what is called a meaningful vote on the outcome of the negotiations. And I don't see how it can possibly uh, command a majority in the House of Commons. At present, it looks like about 80 Conservatives will rebel. She's also alienated the Democratic Unionist Party, her allies from Northern Ireland. Uh, she's dependent on them for any kind of government majority. They might pull out e even next week. So the, the, the whole thing looks more or less impossible. I, I don't think it can get through. When you hear uh, <coughs> Theresa May say, hey, look, I'm giving you what you want. I'm, I'm doing what Brexit demands. What are you, what are you hearing? Well, a bunch of lies, basically, and she's been absolutely mendacious. Uh, we won't be retaining our sovereignty. We'll be taking orders from the European Union. Uh, we'll be paying through the nose for this privilege. 
and uh, we won't be in control of practically anything. I mean, uh, it's, it's very difficult to understand how she could persuade herself that what she has done bears any relationship to the aims put forward by the Brexiteers during the referendum. Of course, she wasn't one of them. Are you concerned, ultimately, about the structure of the United Kingdom with all of this going on again? If the agreement goes through, uh, it could have repercussions for the Union. Um, the DUP, the, the, the leading party in Northern Ireland, uh, has said that it insists that it, a Northern Ireland must be treated in exactly the same fashion as any other part of the United Kingdom. But in the agreement, it isn't. Uh, the Northern Ireland ends up in a separate position, uh, much more um, being forced to, to take, take more European legislation than, say, the rest of the United Kingdom. And so the, the DUP have accused them more or less of lying, uh, and they're withdrawing their support, and, and they will only support a Conservative government now in future if it's a different prime minister. Um, she says she's doing this to stop a hard border being uh, constructed between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland, but no one's proposing a hard border. This is a complete red herring. The British have said they want a hard border. The Irish have said they want a hard border. The European Union has said that they want a hard border. So who's supposed to be constructing a hard border? Uh, there's a, a small amount of trade comes over the border, and it could easily be monitored by new technology, uh, and you know, by cameras, and, and also by um, agreements like they have in VNT and other things, simply to have self-assessment uh, and to do all this <coughs> digitally or by post. Uh, you didn't, don't need to have anybody on the border. Um, the other thing is that by giving the Irish a separate status, and the Northern Irish a separate status. Uh, the Scots, uh, who are ruled just now by my fellow Scots, who are ruled by the SNP from Edinburgh, they want a separate status. They want to be able to um, take all the rules and regulations from Brussels, uh, because the, the Scot Nats, which have a completely illogical um, policy position of wanting to be an independent country inside a federal Europe, uh, they want to be as close to Brussels as possible, and therefore they're, they're now saying, well, the Irish have been forced to accept a special agreement whereby they're closer to Brussels. Why can't this be extended to Scotland? Mm -hmm. To which May replies, well, we're only doing it in Ireland because of the border issue. You don't have a border issue, and you're part of the, the rest of the United Kingdom. So Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP uh, First Minister in Scotland, will do what she can uh, to stir up support for a second Scottish independence referendum. However, she can only have one if Westminster agrees to it, and Westminster won't. Uh, and in any case, there's no evidence from opinion polls that a majority of Scots either want a second referendum or would vote for independence. What a situation. But, I mean, it, 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 the whole issue of the Brexit deal is stirring these things up. And you're responsible for all of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, in a way. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm responsible for a, a process which ended up with the, the British saying they want to be a normal, self-governing, independent democracy again. You're not so. Too, no, you're not too fond of too fond of UKIP now, and you're no fan of Nigel Farage. No, um, I, I think after I left the party, 
became extraordinarily uh, right-wing, um, uh, really quite racist, anti-Islamophobic, and uh, really lost interest in the EU and began to talk nearly all the time about immigration. Um, it didn't actually get anywhere. I mean, it, it, as a protest party, it, after they changed the system for elections to the European Parliament, it ended up dominating uh, them because it became the largest right. British party in the European Parliament. But, but nobody in Britain cares about the European Parliament. Yeah. Professor Skett, I, I have about 45 seconds left. What's going oh, to happen? Sorry. What, what, no, I wish I had more. And, What's and in um, British elections, he didn't get anywhere. In 2010, yeah. it was still only getting 3% of the vote. What happened was the Lib Dems collapsed by joining the Cameron, and then UKIP became right. the, de the de facto Give me, give me, give me ten seconds, please. What's going to happen with Brexit? I need it in ten seconds. I think the government will collapse. I think uh, May will be kicked out, uh, and I think there'll be no deal. Thank you so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Good speaking with you, Professor. Thank you very much, Professor Alan Sked from the London School of Economics, and he's responsible for Brexit. He founded the party. So, uh, politics in Canada. Sometimes it's kind of vapid. It's boring. It's dull. It's predictable. But there are certain provinces where when politics becomes the issue at the dinner table and beyond, it's anything but vapid, boring, and dull. And it's a blood sport. And I, I've always said that there are two provinces in Canada where politics just is a blood sport. One is Quebec and the other is British Columbia. And uh, British Columbia is governed by a very interesting coalition at the moment as you know, but there's a by-election coming up in Nanaimo, and I was reading a column written by my colleague, Mike Smith, who's a, the political columnist for the Vancouver, uh, for the province uh, newspaper in Vancouver, also talk show host at CKNW Radio, where you're hearing this program, and uh, uh, Mike's headline is, in biggest BC by-election ever, Horgan charges out. So, Mike, this is this is huge. This is massive. This could result in a provincial election, and uh, if you know if 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 uh, the NDP loses, and the Greens are running, as you're right, they're running a candidate against the NDP, and the Liberals are going to use this as a, a referendum. What put it all into perspective for us, please? Well, you know what, Roy, it was interesting to hear you uh, reflect on BC politics because I often tell my friends in this business, as a, as a columnist writing about BC politics, I never have writer's block. There's oh, well, I guess always, not. always something going on. And here's another one for you. Someone once told me that uh, when it comes to the practice of politics in this country, in Quebec, it's a religion. In Ontario, it's a business. And in British Columbia, it's entertainment. So, uh, yeah, we always got something going on here in BC. Uh, this by-election <clears throat> that is coming up in Nanaimo, <clears throat> I call it the biggest one ever, because if somehow, some way, the NDP loses this seat, they hold the seat right now, it would drop the legislature into a deadlock. It would be a tie in there if the Liberals can somehow steal this seat from the NDP. Now, if there's a tie in the House, I say that'd be curtains, pretty much curtains for the government. It would trigger the downfall of the government, and then we'd be into an election next year. So the the by-election has not been called yet, but Premier John Horgan has indicated he will call that by-election uh, very soon, 
and it will likely be held very early in the new year, like around, uh, you'll probably call it in January. So, yeah, this everything's on the line in this one. And he's not at all reluctant to get at this one. No, you know, some, sometimes premiers will drag their feet on by-elections because uh, you have six months to call it. Uh, once a seat has become vacant, but on this one, he's he's ready to he's ready to rock and and get going on this right away because right now with the seat being uh, with the with the seat being it will be vacant once the uh, the the reason we're having the by election by the way is the NDP MLA for the riding ran for mayor in Nanaimo and he won so he has to step down he has not stepped down yet it's so close in the legislature he's 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 doing double duty right now as the mayor and an MLA. But when he steps down, that seat will be vacant, and that will reduce the NDP uh, majority in there to one seat in their governing alliance with the, the Green Party. We've got a minority parliament here. So he needs to get that seat filled. He needs that vote as soon as possible. So he's not wasting any time in, in calling this by-election. Now, the NDP should win it. This, uh, this is considered a quote-unquote safe NDP seat. They won it handily last time. They almost always win it. But this being British Columbia... You just never know. And the liberals, the opposition liberals, have put up a pretty good candidate there. The NDP is a strong candidate. Like I said, the NDP should win it, but you never know. In this crazy province, weird stuff happens. So you never know. Well, Mike, why, why are the Greens running uh, a candidate? That almost seems to be, well, at least potentially self-defeating. Yeah, that, that was, that's a good question because there was, some, there was some speculation that because the B.C. Green Party right now is in a governing alliance with the NDP, they hold the balance of power in this minority government, that maybe the last thing they would want to see is the NDP to lose this seat and the whole government come crashing down and they would lose all their influence in a minority government. So there was some thought that, well, maybe the Green Party would, would uh, sit this one out and maybe help the NDP. But the Green Party has indicated, no, 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 they're... they're they're going to run a candidate here. So maybe that's a little bit of good news for the Liberals. If the Green Party candidate can peel away some uh, votes from the NDP, maybe it gives the Liberals a, a, shot, a shot to pull the upset here. Although, if you talk to the leader of the Green Party here, Andrew Weaver, he'll say, oh, that's just a myth that we split the vote on the left wing here with the NDP. We still vote from the right as well. So, you know, I, I think, but I still think uh, secretly the Liberals are probably pleased uh, that the Green Party is going to run a, run a candidate in there, because they think that probably helps them. Let me quote from your column. Governing parties have a terrible track record in provincial by-elections since 1981. The governing party's one-loss record in by-elections is a woeful 2 and 22. Yeah. Those two government victories were both won by Christy Clark. So if Malcolmson, the projected NDP candidate in, in Nanaimo, is to pull this off, she must become the first candidate from a governing party who is not the premier to win a provincial by-election in 37 years. That's yeah. that's taking on, that's taking on a well at least uh, visually at least you know in your mind's eye. That's a major challenge. Yeah, it is because historically the governing party, even in safe government seats, they typically lose. Um, and the only time that the governing party has won. In the last 37 years, there were two that the governing party ended up winning, and they were both won by Christy Clark, and she was both the premier at the time. Every other time, the governing party has lost a by-election. So in order for the NDP to pull this off and win this by-election, they'll, they'll have to buck that trend. And they probably will. I mean, Sheila Malcolmson is, uh, is the, uh, an MP for the riding. She won as MP handily. She's, a, she's got good name recognition. She's got a political machine on the ground up there. So, like I said, she should likely win it. But the, ND, or the Liberals have put up a pretty good candidate there as well, a guy named Tony Harris, who's from a very well-known family in Nanaimo that ran a bunch of car dealerships and cell phone companies and 
people know them because they had very popular TV commercials locally with a very memorable jingle and very rich, high-profile family that's given a lot of money to charity. So, you know, not a bad candidate to be, to be running him in that riding. And he's making a lot of promises. He's, he's come up there. He's already said, uh, look, if you elect us as, a, as the liberals there, yeah, it'll bring the government down. But if we form government, uh, we'll put a cancer center in there. Uh, we'll put a walk-on ferry in there. You could be able to walk on the ferry in Nanaimo and take a ferry to downtown Vancouver. Oh, yeah, they're promising the moon, the stars, the sun, all the, all the dark matter in the universe. You know, <laughs> maybe, they'll, maybe, they'll, uh, maybe they'll promise a monorail next. I don't know. But uh, they know that if they can pull this off, pull this upset, it brings the whole government coming crashing it's down huge. here. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's massive. A lot, there's a lot to fight for there. Now, uh, of importance is the, the, uh, the attractiveness and the performance of and the acceptance of the premier. Now, much of the rest of Canada... Premier Horgan is a bit of a villain because of the issue of pipelines. But in British Columbia, he's quite well-liked, as I understand it, as far as polling is concerned. Well, you know what? Uh, Horgan has, I would say, has exceeded expectations as Premier. When he was an opposition leader, he was kind of considered an an old, angry guy who uh, was a bit of a bitter guy that didn't really have a lot going for him as a leader of a party. But he pulled off this uh, election win and he has governed pretty effectively as premier, has shown to be he's pretty smart, he has not made a lot of mistakes, and a lot of the recent opinion polling shows the opposition liberals in a small lead, but the NDP still bearing up pretty well. Uh, The budget is still balanced here in British Columbia, so they haven't blown the bank with huge deficit spending budgets. Uh, The economy in B.C. is doing not bad. There haven't been any big scandals or anything like that. So... Um, and, and this being a safe NDP seat, quote-unquote, uh, they should hang on there. But weird stuff happens here. So yeah. who knows? Mike, let me introduce a final question for you, the what-if sure. factor. What if, what if the Liberals win? Yeah. What if there's an election, which which inevitable. Let's say there's a, the Liberals win, there's an election called, you have the referendum underway now for British Columbians deciding how they want to vote going forward. Yeah. Um, it's a long campaign the referendum campaign, what if this all happens? What's your best guess on how British Columbians will decide the next election will should be run, or will that be too early for the referendum results to take effect? Well, here's an interesting thing. We're having a referendum here in B.C. right now on whether to switch to proportional representation, and it is a mail-in ballot. There's two weeks to go in this campaign, and it looks very close. Now, here's an interesting thing, though. If if that referendum passes, if the yes side wins and BC is going to switch to a proportional representation voting system, which is supported by the NDP and the Green Party, it would not come into effect until 2021. Mm-hmm. Under the rules of this referendum, if there is an election before that, it would be held under the current first past the post system. So that makes this by-election in Nanaimo even bigger. If, if this election passes, let's say we get a controversial, very narrow margin victory for the yes side, the people of Nanaimo in that by-election would not only be voting whether or not to bring the whole government down, but whether or not to disqualify the results of that referendum too. Because wow. if we go into an early election, then proportional representation is off the table. Wow. The referendum result gets wiped out at the same time. Wow. It's big. It's a big it's one. It's huge. Yeah. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Always great You're talking welcome, to you. Bye bye, Mike Thank Smith. Uh, political columnist for the Vancouver province and talk show host at our chorus radio station in Vancouver, CKNW. There's a disturbing story. 
Um, Sandra Bullock, not not the uh, the actress, forty four year old single mom who uh, has a nine year old son who's developmentally delayed severely, and she is having a battle with her insurance company, and we're going to hear about that from James Fireman. He's a partner at Samfiro Tremarkin LLP. He represents uh, the uh, the client, Ms. Ms. Bullock. Um, James, thank you very much for the time. I'm reading this story, and I just reading it. I'm deeply disturbed by what I'm reading. Uh, you explain it to us, please. Uh, explain to our listeners what's going on. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Roy, especially about a case like this. So my client, Sandra, uh, she, as you mentioned, has a severely developmentally delayed son. He's nine years old. She's got a very demanding job. And like many people, she's also got a lot of other things in her life that can be stressful. And she's endured this for many, many years, but it's built up on her. And so last year, it got to be too much. She had been diagnosed with major depression, with adjustment disorder, and she just simply wasn't able to cope. All of her doctors have told her that she cannot work. And so she fortunately has, or you would think fortunately, has a disability policy, one that would pay her in the event that she's disabled and isn't able to work. So she applies, as one does, um, and initially they say, no, there isn't enough information, but then they change their mind, and they pay her for a little while. Then she gets worse, and this is what all of her doctors have said. And somehow her insurance company decided that she's able to go back to work. And in fact, what they said to her is that because she's able to care for her severely developmentally disabled son, that it proves that she must be able to work. That's what essentially they've told her. You know, know, she's left in a position where she can't work, she has to care for her son, and she's got no money coming in. And with the conditions that she already has, you can imagine the stress is just making it that much worse. I'm reading from, uh, from the description I have of the situation that she as a mother, lives with, but the care she provides. Her son, nine years old, um, he functions at the level of an 18 to 22-month-old child. At night, she sleeps in bed with him in order to ensure that he doesn't die because of his difficulty swallowing. And that, of course, has led to a lack of sleep for Sandra and exhaustion. Anybody who puts those factors together should be able to deduce but here's a very serious situation, and a mother who's under tremendous stress, tremendous stress, who needs assistance, but not only that, she's been paying premiums for the help she's supposed to receive from her insurance company. And they decide because she's able to take care of her son, she's not eligible for the disability insurance. Who thinks this stuff up? Well, you've got it exactly, Roy. And I really, you know, I have to tell you, I really appreciate that you're prepared to go into some of the nuance here. Because that's what can be lost. You know, this is a lady who, it's not like she's a shrinking violet. It's not like she just one day decided, I don't want to do this anymore. She's been enduring an incredibly difficult situation for years. For years. And it just mounted on her, as one might expect. So, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head with it. I mean, this is someone, when you look at the circumstances of her life, how anyone can conclude that she's in a condition to be able to work right now, with the support of all of her doctors and with what she's going through is beyond me.
absolutely beyond. And I'm guessing it just was a letter saying you're disqualified. There wasn't a phone call. There wasn't any empathy uh, displayed. It was just like, oh, we've, we've con- reconsidered your case, and you're disqualified from receiving any support. Well, yeah, um, except there was some detail. And, you know, the detail, as I was alluding to before, what they're, you know, essentially saying is that because she can take care of her son, right. that she must be able to work. Right. And, you know, you can draw a conclusion from that generally. Does that mean that, you know, if you have a disabled child and you care for them, that you're no longer quali- you're no longer able to claim disability insurance? Is that what it means? Well, how many parents will that affect across this country? God knows. And how many, how many caregivers for elderly people would it affect? For the, people who look after their parents and are, and are sacrificing much of their own life in order to provide care for the loved ones. And if you happen to have an insurance policy, you feel like you're covered. You feel like you're protected. You've been paying your premiums. And then you get hit with this? It's well, I, I, exactly just so right. disturbing. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, disability policy is there to give you peace of yeah. mind. It's there to, you know, make you... You know, feel that if something happens to you, you're protected, you're covered, yep. that you're going to have this stream of income that's still going to come in and support you when you need it the most. And when it's not there, especially when your disability is a mental health disability, something that means that you can't cope with the stresses of normal life, and they denied in those circumstances, it just makes it so much worse. It must be just, um, I mean, uh, economically devastating for her. Absolutely. There's no money coming in. And you can imagine, you know, she has all kinds of uh, financial responsibilities yep. for her family. She doesn't just have one son, by the way. She's got two um, that she's caring for. So she's in a terrible position. And they know it. They know it. They know it. Well, now they know they have that she has a very good lawyer. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you, Roy. And, uh, James, thank you very much for sharing the story with us. And thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate yeah. the opportunity to talk on your show. A little public pressure on this, on these people. All the very best to you, and let us know how it turns out. We'll do right. Thank you. James Fireman, partner at Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP. Sherry Arsenault's son, Bradley, and uh, two of his friends, Thaddeus Lake and Cole Novak, were killed by drunk driver Jonathan Pratt in 2011. He drove his vehicle at over 200 kilometers an hour into the car the three teens were driving in, in Alberta. And uh, this week, Pratt was awarded day parole during a parole hearing, he'd asked for full parole. And from what Sherry has told us repeatedly in our conversations, Pratt has never expressed remorse, has never apologized. And Sherry was at the parole hearing. We spoke to her two weeks ago with the parole hearing coming up. Sherry's back with us now. Well, Sherry, thank you for uh, again for speaking with us. And what do you come away with? Before we talk about what happened in the parole board hearing, ultimately, what did you come away with? How were you treated? What was the feeling in there? Well, you know, we were treated okay. You know, you, we have to jump through all the hoops and make sure we apply our criminal check and go through security and segregated to a little, I, I believe, a staff or a lunchroom whisked in through a back door and, uh, you know, you can't say a word, you you sit and you listen. You know, other than that, I guess we were treated okay. They whisked us out at the end of it and to the parking lot and hoped that we just get out, get out of Dodge, I guess. Were they interested in anything that you might have to say? Well, 
you know, I wrote a victim impact statement, right. and um, this time I did not dwell a lot on the impact because I've done that twice. And, you know, to re-victimize myself by how much I miss my son and what it has done to my family, all three families, I didn't see any sense. So I, my victim impact statement went directly more so after him and his inconsistencies. And um, I think they tried their best to address a lot of my questions. So, so clearly they were aware that, that your case is receiving um, attention and uh, also from our chorus radio stations in, in Alberta. Right. And, and they knew that there was a profile. And so I think they were probably being a little more careful with you. But you've been asking all along for a minimum sentence for this kind of crime. And he was convicted of manslaughter, right? Right, times three. Times three. And this he was convicted when? He was convicted in uh, end of August 2014. So f- four years. Four years. He, Yes, it's been exactly four years. And he is looking for full parole. And he was looking for full parole. Uh, three months, day parole, and then he was looking for full parole to follow. And he had a lawyer. Uh, he did not have a lawyer. He had... Um, uh, his parole officer and a very supportive parole officer, and that's how he chose to go about it. Okay, well, he was entitled to have a lawyer if he wanted to. He was entitled, and he could have. Um, they're entitled to that, as victims were, enti- were not entitled to anything like that. I still find that mind-boggling. Yeah, me too. I, I The victims... <laughs> The victims are allowed to read the statement that they have to prepare weeks in advance, so it cannot be changed. If something came to me in the middle of the night, it's too late. And they are entitled to read and analyze and, you know, prepare for the same statement I will read, and I cannot deviate even one word off of my statement. And that is just so wrong. It is wrong, and and other things too. Like you cannot make a sound. Not like we we have a hard time flipping a page to make a note because you are sort of read the ride act. You cannot make a sound. You cannot communicate. You know to each other even. And you know sometimes you just you know you want to say well, what you know or you can't even say I can't hear. You know it's. Um, very strict conditions are put on the victims. How many uh, how many people were in that room? Well, uh, this hearing, there uh, three of us went, and my brother and my sister, and, and I, I want to give a big kudos to them because, you know, they helped hold me up a little. We specifically went three for three. You know, they- we wanted to represent Brad Cole and Thad, right. and that's exactly what we did. And he had two supporters this time. Uh, last time he had about six or seven. And and at the table of, of the parole board, do they have a they have a chairperson? Somebody uh, who's running have, the meeting. They have uh, what they have is two parole board members. One who 
is listening and on his laptop taking notes, I suppose, one who does most of the talking, and then they have what I would refer to as like a court reporter typing away. Okay. So your feeling was they were interested in Mr. Pratt and not interested in you. Oh, absolutely. Not yeah. interested I mean, in the victims. Not they, 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 they said one thing that, in hindsight, and as I reflect on, they, they said they admire our uh, uh, resistance or really, or what is the word, re, like that we're so uh, resilient. That keep at it. Resilient. Yeah. That's, they said that. That kind of went over my head at the time. But um, other than that, they made it clear to us this is Mr. Pratt's parole hearing, and he does get the last word. Hmm. He gets the last word. He gets the absolute last word. Did he say anything? Yes, he, he did. He took that opportunity, and, and his, his last words, <laughs> he said this is the most difficult thing he's, I ever went through. I'm sorry it happened to me. I'm sorry about what happened to me. He said, I'm sorry it happened to me. Oh, it's happened to me. So he's never apologized to you. He's never never expressed regret. No, he's, you know, uh, this parole hearing, he sort of tried, but it always came back to him. So there's a lot of self-pity going on, and... uh, it's 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 mostly self pity. He he even alluded to what would have happened if it if those three boys weren't there. He he says he he almost alluded that he was thankful they were there because it stopped him. <laughs> so I mean, what do you oh, do with that? I don't know. I have no idea what you do with that, Sherry. No. no idea whatsoever. You've wanted a minimum sentence for this kind of criminal activity. Nobody forces these people to drink. They know what the, the, the message of drunk driving is 100% penetration in our mm-hmm. society. There's no excuse for it. There's no absolvation and, or absolving. And for you not to be allowed to change your victim's impact statement or write a new one as you're heading into the hearing is so yeah. wrong. And for him to have the option and the opportunity to see it, the right to see it, mm-hmm. and the right to make notes about it and then respond to it in his parole hearing... That's just that's wrong. It's supposed to be how 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 responsible he is and whether or not he continues to be a threat to society. And what did they say anything about that? Well, I mean, in my view, there's still very little regard to victims. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're just victims were I think in hindsight were a pain in the neck to them. They'd rather just kind of get on with it and you know, it's, I, I, I often think it's like a hospital bed. We've got to get him out because there's a new guy coming in. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the, the only way I can see it. Um, I think what's, what's most troublesome and what, what bothers me a lot is he was given an eight-year sentence by a judge which we felt was pretty, was, was small because it was concurrent. It was times three, but not 24 years, eight years. But to see what happens once you get into that, that piece of legislation where they're mandatory out in five years, 
he actually, if he probably had some kind of remorse, would have been out in about two and a half years. You know, so eight years means two and a half years. And the public just, you know, we all assume eight years means eight years, but it's not even close. Like, for him to actually serve four years like he has done in and now is granted day parole, that is rare. Most yep. never, never even served that much. That's very so, true. And that's, and that's what I think is bothering me now. It's, uh, you know, I, I listened to your last um, guest, and it sounded like exactly what I've been through. I write to get reasoning from the Justice Ministry's office, from any Liberal MP for that matter, and you cannot get a response. You cannot get their reasoning why things are like they are. What did he? Uh, what did he wind up with? What did the parole board decide? What the parole board decided was they granted. He was asking for three months day parole and then full parole, and they denied him full parole. They did say he was far too much of a high risk, and they could not manage him but they granted him day parole for six months, and then they will go back to a review. Possibly a hearing, but more likely a review if he should just jump into full parole right after that. So he was too high a risk. Too high a risk. To reoffend. To reoffend. I mean, he, he, from the last parole hearing, which was about a year and, I don't know, four or five months ago, a year and a half ago, he did not engage in any programs. He felt he didn't need them. He felt he, he, he just felt he didn't need them. He, he actually said the resources would be used on, for others. Others could use those resources, oh. not him. How and noble. now he thinks, and now... I guess because it's parole time again, he's realized, well, maybe I should engage a little bit in some of these programs of rehabilitation that might help me actually get out. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes the light bulb goes on for these people, but... Yeah, and maybe with a little help from the institution. With a little help, definitely. with a little help. Sherry, how how can the situation change to make it more representative for you, for other victims. It could, be, it could be anybody listening to this program anybody. now. could be the next person who suffers as you've been suffering because of a well, drunk driver. You know, for me, there's so many things that they could do to help victims. No two victims are alike. Mm-hmm. They could do to help victims through this process that would uh, that would not infringe on a offender's rights because they have a list of rights uh you know two inch thick and we have one right and that is to attend a parole hearing and read a victim impact statement if we wish and there's many things that they could do that would help the victims like treat the victims as individuals don't clump us all as the same Victim. Yeah, I think that you've probably had more time with uh, with people at Chorus Media than than you had with the justice system. Oh, you know, you're. I, I, there's no doubt you're probably right. Yeah, Sherry, I you hit that 
nails on the head. Well, I, I mean this, as you know, we'll, we will stay in touch. There's still more to be said, still more to be talked about, and, uh, and we're always here for you. Well, thank you so much I, uh, to everybody. Uh, Roy, you help, you help us put one foot in front of the other, and I mean that sincerely. Well, that's what we're here for, and that's what, uh, and our listeners support that as well. So, Sherry, we will be in touch, and thank you for, thank you for sharing the story today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thanks. Sherry Arsenault. Anne-Marie Gatto is a registered social worker, a psychotherapist, chronic pain counselor, and chronic pain patient. We just have a few seconds to set this up. You have been trying to get an answer from the Federal Minister of Health about something the minister said. In 10 seconds, what are you trying to find out? I'm trying to find out the answer to her claim, uh, to substantiate the claim that uh, prescription opioid medications are driving the opioid crisis. Okay. And you've been in touch with them, with the ministry. You contacted them. You wanted the information. They didn't provide it. Correct. So you Correct. got on. So you got on the phone with a fellow by the name of Pierre. Yes. And I want our listeners to hear this conversation. It's going to be a two-parter. Listen to this conversation between Anne Marie Gatto and Pierre from the minister's office. He didn't know it was being recorded. Pierre. Yep. Hi, it's Anne Marie. You said you were going to call me right back. Yeah. Um. It wasn't working on the, because it was long distance, that's why. You don't have long distance calling at the office? No. That makes no sense. It's a, well, we don't. It's yeah. a national office. That makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it wouldn't let us. Um... Okay, that's bizarre. So, um, if you remember Dan, the intern that was there, um, I was talking to him for quite a while, and he said he passed all of my information on to you because he had to go back to school so that you'd be able to help me out um, now, when he's gone. Dan. Dan, your intern. Yeah, there's no one that was named Dan that worked here. Well, he was an intern. I talked to him several times over several weeks at this number. And he was an intern, so he was a student. And he said that he gave you um, my information, so to call back and ask for you. Yeah, there's no Dan here. I don't know. Well, no, he's not there now because he's gone back to school I know, in September. Was, there wasn't no Dan. Well, there was because I spoke with him several times, several times over several weeks. I would call and speak to him. So there was a Dan. Maybe he just was there when you weren't, and I don't know why, but he told me I that he explained there. it all to you. If I, was, if I wasn't there when he was there, he wouldn't get my name. So that's one thing that... I, I have no explanation for it. That's all I can tell you, was that he told me his name was Dan, and we spoke several times over several weeks. That's odd. Yeah, because... Yeah, everything's it, odd in this office so far. My goodness. Yeah, because he did not hand me anything at all. Okay, he said he explained it all to you, so I'll just go over it briefly. Um, I wrote a letter to the minister back in June and have never received a reply. And so I was calling for this reason. Now, specifically why I was calling is because um, at that time when I wrote the letter, one of the latest um, press announcements that the minister was making was that, uh, quote, high rates of opioid prescriptions are a contributing factor to Canada's opioid crisis. And so I wrote a letter saying that um, I'm a chronic pain patient, an advocate, and have been for many years, and I have yet to see any evidence of this, and I would like to know where this is coming from. So 
So if the minister makes such a claim, this must be coming from somewhere, and I wanted to know where. And Dan didn't have the information as of yet, so he said it would take a little while to, to, to get things organized once the house came back, etc., etc., and, that, and that's why it was, it was passed along to you at um, a little bit later date. Yeah, he didn't pass anything on to me. Um, so basically, you wanted to know. Just more. Yeah, sorry. Basically, you wanted to know if the opioids. Every time the minister makes an announcement saying that high rates of opioid prescriptions yeah. are a contributing factor to the overdose deaths, I want to know where this information is coming from. What, what studies, what research is there to suggest such a thing? That prescriptions are driving the overdose deaths. That's what I want to know. And you sent the letter you said in June and no one got back to you yet? Correct. If you don't know anything about this, perhaps there's someone else there who could be who could be uh, of more help. I don't know, but we can. I can figure. I can ask some some of the the directors or regional advisors about this, and I could come back to you. I can call you back with more information about that. Okay, I have to tell you, this is really starting to get on my nerves because I've spoken at length about this and written at length about this and I don't seem to be getting anywhere except for I uh, don't have an answer, which doesn't make any sense to me. You can't put something out into the public without having something to back up that claim. It can't be that difficult. And you don't even seem to know who to ask at this point. I just told you I'll ask my directors or the regional advisors. Perhaps you could access the letter. Sorry, perhaps. perhaps you could access the letter I sent. Um, I would have to talk to the admin people on my floor to get a hold of of that letter because it's been since June. So you would have to look up where it is at this point. Maybe it's not in my building. Maybe it's in, or sorry, not my building. Maybe it's not on my floor. Maybe it went to. Like let's say the thirteenth floor, so I would have to look up to uh, look for it. But well, um, <clears throat> what's I generally should... the process when someone writes a letter? Like I don't expect to write a letter to anyone um, within the government in June and hear it be the end of October and not receive a response. Depending on who, um, so there's different. There's like directors, and, and there's a whole team that takes care of. Um, of letters, of emails, so like it gets branched off, right? Okay. I don't personally know who it gets branched off. I can just find out. I could find out where it went or who's 
responsible for uh, for it. Well, I'd like somebody to do something. I mean, the months are dragging on, and I still have zero answer, and this is just not acceptable. Yeah, um, I'll definitely, right now, everybody's went, went home or whatnot, so um, when I come in on Monday, I'll still write an email today. Uh, when I come in on Monday, um, hopefully I get an answer. As to what? Where the letter is? Uh... The let um, the letter I'd have to ask on Monday because that department, everyone's gone uh, at this point. Um, and as to your question, actually. I don't know. <laughs> I have to go back to Anne-Marie. Because we may have to cut back a little bit on the second part of the call just to get some time in with okay. you here. But I'm listening to this man say he can't make a long-distance call. And I also heard him say, I'll call you, uh, I'll call you on Monday. Correct. <laughs> Yes. Well, Plus, Roy, he seemingly tuned out as I expected. He had no intention of ever calling me back to begin with. So why would he even listen to what I was saying? Yeah. How 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 frequently did they get back to you? No one has ever gotten back to me. You're the one who's always ever. initiating the contact, and you're looking for Correct. the minister to back up the claims she's making. Correct. And I have yet to get a response. I've been asking this particular question since June. And your letter and could be in this building or on that floor or... But that or department anything. or this team, and he's going to ask an advisor, my God. He doesn't seem to know who to ask at that point. No. You're a columnist for the Payne News Network as well. Uh, yes, sometimes I am, yes. Is there anything you want to say before we go back to part two of the call? Uh, well, I just wanted to say um, I'm baffled. Uh, her opioid response team appears to have over 100 staff listed on the website, so I'm baffled that despite all of the taxpayer-funded research and policy analysis, that the minister's office couldn't share that evidence quite quickly. It should be on the website. You should be able to look it up on the website. The minister makes a claim like that. It should be backed up on a website, easily refer- referenced. Yeah, apparently it's a mystery. Okay, hold on, Anne-Marie. Sure. Let's listen to a little more of the phone call. We won't be able to get it all in, so I want to talk to Anne-Marie some more before the end of the segment. But here's more of her conversation with Pierre, the, 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 the representative for the Federal Minister of Health. And all they were asking was, all Anne-Marie was asking was, what's the material you're using, Minister, to claim that prescription opioids are causing to or contributing to the opioid crisis? Yes, my question is, I would like to know uh, where this information is coming from because I can't... I can't um, I've, I'm not able to find it. I've asked other people. They're not able to find it. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of Health Quality Ontario. Um, well, they recently had um, a webinar, and Dr. Fiona Campbell was the speaker for it. And in their information, I'm looking at their graph right now, in their information, their list of statistics, I think they're from 2007 to 2017, so they have um, a red line escalating, almost going straight up to the sky, which is the, the overdose deaths, which, which continue to increase, yes. And um, they have a blue line at the bottom, which are prescription medications, prescription painkiller medications, and that line continues to go down. Um, and she said in the webinar, uh, the disparity between the escalation in deaths and in prescribing suggests this is not a prescription opioid problem which of course pain patients have always known. Now, as well as that, 
Uh, I'm also looking at an article uh, that was published in the Star about drug dealing pharmacists, which are feeding Ontario's opioid crisis. So apparently they've put millions of dollars of prescription opioids uh, onto the streets for big money. Um, They're criminals, and I think there's well over 200 of them. But yet again, pain patients have been blamed for diverting their prescriptions, which I see no evidence of, and doctors blamed for over-prescribing. And again, that hasn't happened as well. So where is this information coming from? And... Uh, I look to um, BC, which curiously enough, BC has, their their coroner's office has always been to, able to distinguish when someone dies from an overdose, what it is they died from, um, the actual substance. So they, they can actually say this is an illicit fentanyl death. So that's an illegal drug. Yes, mostly coming in from China. But Ontario, for some reason, the coroner's office has never been able to do that as of yet. I don't know why. So they just label everything an opioid death, which is it's very unclear and it's very vague. And everyone, I think, is using that um, just as some fantastical excuse to say that it's pain medications and pain patients that are the ones dying in the streets when it's clearly not. I mean, the B.C. government has great statistics and information um, that anyone can access that they said since 2012, it's been illicit fentanyl that's been accounts for the increase in illicit drug overdose. Um, and that uh, their cases from 2016 to 18 indicates the top four detected drug drugs from the overdoses are this illicit fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine or meth and heroin. So clearly this has nothing to do with prescription medications. Yet when when press releases and whatnot come out from the minister's office, we're continually hearing high rates of opioid prescriptions are a contributing factor, but I can see this nowhere. And I would like to know where this is coming from, where this, where this, where these claims are coming from. Mm-hmm. 100%. I understand. Um, like I said, um, on Monday, well, I'm going to send out, um, I'm going to ask the question or send an email one of the the directors or the regional advisors to find out um, the answer for that for your question and ask for your email. I'd have to Monday is the day I would have to um, ask uh, one of my colleagues where your it was by mail, right? You said no. It was sent by email. It was sent by email. Okay. So um yeah, I'd have to ask uh, one of my colleagues where. I, find your email or whatnot on Monday what's your shift on Monday I can't tell you that ma'am why not whenever I call to see when you're coming in whoever's on the phone tells me I what know. time your shift I is know, how am I supposed to call you if I don't know what time your shift is it's not I, I a personal question you. it's not a personal question you can't call me you just told me you can't call long distance which I don't believe I for a second I will call you so, you, at first you said you can't call long distance, which Ma'am, is a ridiculous notion, but you. now you're saying you're going to call Ma'am, me. So, which I is it? Which is you. it, Pierre? Which is it? I I'm tired of you. this. Which is it? I will call you. So, now you have long distance and you can call out. I will call you. There you go. So, I can There's expect you. a call. You can end it now. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> well, Anne-Marie, I don't know what to say. I just don't know what to say. That is just, that's brutal. Actually. That's just brutal. 
Yes, it was brutal. It wasn't just insulting to me, Roy, but it was insulting to taxpayers across Canada. I mean, do we really make inquiries to be spoken to like that? No. And I can't tell you when my shift is. And I can't phone you because we don't have long distance, but I'll phone you. Yes. It it was just nonsensical, all of it. And it was was much worse than that, unfortunately, the parts that that you didn't have time to play. Um, None of it made sense. And um, I... I, um, I've been asking since June, you know, I deserved respect and an apology, um, not to be affronted, which is yeah. what happened at the end. Let me ask you this. Have they gotten in touch with you since you made that call? Of course not. Oh, of course not. Of course not. So Monday came and went and Pierre didn't call you? No one called me. No he, one just tra- he, just, he just thought he could make long-distance calls. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps, yes. I mean, he was so tuned out. I mean, for yeah. all I know, he could have been on his cell phone, on Facebook, or texting. I have no idea. Yeah. My dear, I've got to go. Marie, thank you. And Marie, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. I know Roy. there was more to come, but I needed to talk to you. I didn't have time for everything. That's but, fine. But we'll stay in touch. Always a pleasure, Roy. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much for what you do. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.